Go ahead and have a seat. Welcome to Village Church. If this is your first time here, my name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here at Village Church. And as always, I'm thankful, grateful to see each and every one of you. Spent the last week at camp with some of your kids. So my voice is struggling a little bit. So if, if it starts fading towards the end, I got three of these to get through. I'm doing the best I can. They could barely keep up with me, I tell you. As always, I was very impressed with myself. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn it to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be starting in verse 42 this morning. But before we get into that, I uh, don't want to lose the opportunity um, to, of course, celebrate as a great evil has been undone, and that is Roe versus Wade. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And I know that even uh, among the three services today, many of you have spent years, if not decades, praying towards this end. Um, and some of you even have been working uh, towards this end behind the scenes. And so we thank you and we are very glad. The fight is not over, but we will celebrate uh, the reality that there are many states, uh, if not already, it will be illegal uh, to abort many children this morning. I believe thousands, if not millions of lives will be saved because of the undoing of the evil of Roe versus Wade. And when historic righteousness rises, the scriptures tell us in uh, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 13, that righteousness exalts a nation. And this was certainly a righteous ruling. It is not difficult if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you believe that the word of God is authoritative to see that abortion is a great evil, it is murder. The scripture is very clear. Don't do that, even if it is an inconvenient child. I tell you, um, from a very young age, I've been acquainted with the scriptures. And so my entire life, as long as I can remember, I, of course, have been pro-life. I've been anti-abortion. I have no problem. I am completely confident in sharing that with you because the law of God is securely on the side of life. It is not on the side of killing the innocent. And I also, as a father of three, I remember, I'm going to have to cut my sermon short because I just keep talking. But uh, I, I remember that at the 20-week appointment, we were at St. Francis, and the doctor shared with us we were having a little boy. And I said, clearly. And uh, <laughs> can't miss that. Uh, but he shared with us also that in the state of Virginia, he wouldn't say the words, but he said, if you're going to do anything, you must do it soon. And I was baffled because I had no idea what he was talking about. I said, what do you mean? And he spilled the beans and I just looked at him and I said, absolutely not. I said, wouldn't even be a thought in my mind. And of course, I have three children now and I, I can tell you as a father, it's rooted in the righteousness of the word of God, but experientially it pains me that there are many who will willfully choose to forego the great blessing of God that it is to have a quiverful of children in your life. If you need help, there are people in this church, I know them personally, they will adopt your child. It is a myth and a lie that Christians are not fostering, Christians are not adopting. There are a hundred believers and families that I know personally that would line up right now to adopt any child to save that child's life from the wickedness of murder of an innocent child. And so we rejoice as a church. We are thankful as a church that there were righteous people on the Supreme Court that have validated really in our nation that the Word of God is preeminent. Even if they ruled for a reason that wasn't the Word of God, understand Morality is only explained through the law of God. There is no other source 
that we can root objective morality in other than the eternal Word of God. Two weeks ago, we started looking at the church of Jesus as the body of Christ. The universal church is only seen in the life of the local church. The church, of course, emerges from the work of God as He redeems people from sin through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then disciples come together and form a church to equip as well as to be equipped for the work of gospel ministry in the world. Therefore, if you want to follow Jesus, friend, you will be a part of a real local church. Last Sunday we looked at what the church looks like outside of the walls of the church as we seek to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to those around us. But this week I want to pull it kind of back in where two weeks ago I gave kind of a 15,000 foot view of the church. I want to focus in a little more to lay down really a definition for what the local church is as well as explain what it means to be a member of a local church. I know at Village Church I've heard from many over the last 13 years that we do membership differently maybe than the church that you grew up in or the church that you were previously in where we actually have standards for what it means to be a member. Some of you have never had an interview for membership before. Some of you have never been told that if you want to be a member there are some things that you have to commit to and that you need to be able to articulate the gospel so that we can affirm that you are really a follower of Jesus. Jesus Christ. But what I hope to show you today is the biblical basis for why we look at the church the way that we do, as well as why we look at church membership the way that we do. I want to begin by reading in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. And they, now who are they? They are the people who had heard the gospel proclaimed by the apostle Peter and had repented of their sins, turned to faith in Jesus Christ. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Number one this morning, understand the church is meant to be seen in this world. The church is meant to be seen in this world. You see an interesting picture in Acts chapter 2 of a redeemed people coming together for the purpose of discipleship. It says they devoted themselves. So there was a set of practices that required commitment, and they committed to those things. It says they committed to the apostles' teaching. Undoubtedly, there would have been a great focus on the received text at that time, which would have been the Old Testament, but through the lens of the gospel of Jesus, as well as the teaching that would ultimately become the New Testament. But then it also says they devoted themselves to fellowship. There were relationships between Christians rooted in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the breaking of bread, which scholars tell us probably referred both to the communion meal that was shared in the corporate gathering as well as fellowship dinners outside of the corporate gathering to further uh, discipleship and fellowship in the life of the church. And then finally it says to prayer 
as a church, both individually and corporately and in discipleship, they devoted themselves to calling on the name of the Lord. And this is seen throughout the book of Acts. Now, for our purposes, what I want you to understand is that this was not done as a secret society separated from the culture around them. Rather, the text tells us first that they sold their possessions, distributed to anyone that would have need in the church. Why would anyone have need in the church? Well, the New Testament tells us because they began very early on to be persecuted for their faith because it was countercultural to the Jewish faith as well as to the pluralism that was in Rome. And they were persecuted. They were losing their jobs. They were losing their livelihood. But then secondly... We see the text tell us that they had favor with all the people and day by day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. They were publicly displaying their faith in Jesus Christ. They were publicly practicing the discipleship through the vehicle of the local church and the culture was being impacted because their commitment to faith in Jesus Christ was seen. It is our unique commitment as the body of Christ and to the body of Christ that the world sees the distinctions of Christian discipleship. Therefore, as the New Testament progressed and then you get the letters of the apostles, the letters of the apostle Paul, you begin to see a picture of exactly what a local New Testament church looks like as an organized body that can be seen by everyone around them. So, according to the scriptures, you cannot just label you and a couple of friends getting together as a church. You can't just decide, well, my small group is church. You do not have the authority to do that. Why? I want to take you through a list of a few minimum standards. I could tease this out further and further. I tried to make it as minimal as possible, and I'm offering some proof texts at the end. We won't go through those texts. If you want to write these down, take a picture of it, you can look at it later. But I want to kind of give you a summary of the New Testament's teaching as to what a local church is. First, Scriptures tell us that a local church is a community of regenerated believers. That's a theological way of saying Christians. Regenerated believers means that you are someone who has come to faith in Christ. The Holy Spirit has changed your life through His power. It's what it means to be born again. A community of regenerated believers who confess Jesus Christ as Lord. That is why here at Village Church, we want to hear your testimony we want to hear you articulate the gospel so that we know that you understand what it is to follow Jesus Christ and that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Secondly, it is organized under qualified leadership. I cannot say enough as to how important this distinction is. The scripture gives us two very specific lists. One of them I shared with you, 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 through 7, as well as in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, you see a very specific list where the Apostle Paul tells young Timothy, here is what you are looking for in qualified leaders and overseers of the New Testament church. If you read those lists, though, you'll, you'll see something very interesting. Is that the qualifications are basically someone who's a genuine Christian with one extra thing they can teach. So if you look at the list, it's not really that impressive, nor can you look at the list of qualifications of a pastor and say, well, since I'm not going to be a pastor, I don't need to live like this. 
No, the standards are just a biblical Christian who can be trusted to teach and lead the body of Christ. And thirdly, we gather regularly for preaching and teaching that we have the word proclaimed to the body of Christ and we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs together as a church. A local church observes the biblical ordinances of baptism and communion. It doesn't take very long for you to see that here at Village Church we practice both of those. Communion we practice typically every week with a few exceptions throughout the year. But the next one, number five, is, is unique in that we are unified by the Spirit. And that's an important distinction because many want the church to be unified around personal preference, around an affinity that you have, around a hobby, around an age group. But the church is different. One of the unique characteristics of the church of Jesus Christ is that for many of us, our paths would not cross if it weren't for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our personalities are so different, there's no way we would be friends if it weren't for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our ages are so different that there's no way we would be together if it wasn't for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit unites the church philosophically, theologically, missionally, and relationally in distinction around the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then next, we are excuse me, disciplined for Holiness. And I gave you Titus 3.10 there because that's a minimal way in which you can see that there was a standard passed on from the Apostle Paul to a young pastor named Titus that if anyone in the church seeks to promote disunity, protect that unity by warning them and then if they do it again, put them out from among you, have nothing to do with them. So there are standards. Church discipline is enforced here at Village Church, especially over the issue of unity. And then finally, as we talked about last Sunday, we scatter to fulfill the great commandment and the great commission as missionaries to the world around us. In other words, you can't hope to fulfill the great commandment to love God and love others if you're not a part of the local church. can't do it. you got to be sent by the church. But you also can't fulfill the great commission without the local church because where are you going to take them for discipleship if you don't take them to the local church? And so the scattering of the church is how the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being seen. So that is a minimal definition of the local church. And I want to go out from there to show how does that local church engage society as a whole through its distinctions to bring the gospel to the world around us. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 22 through 25, gives a vision for non-believers even having an opportunity to gather with Christians to see them function as a church. Now, there's some theological things in here that I'm not going to talk about. If you come to our membership class, I will talk about those things and the distinctions that we have in our beliefs here at Village Church. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are all out of your minds? Now, very quickly I want to explain what was going on here. The biblical gift of tongues, we're not a charismatic church. I'm very quick to tell everybody that. We do not believe that that is a gift for our day. 
But the charismatic gift of tongues was in this first century. You had a believer that spoke one language and unbelievers that did not speak the language. And you see this in Acts chapter 2. The apostle Peter preached the gospel in Hebrew and a little bit of Aramaic, and people from all over the world understood the gospel in their own dialect, a massive miracle of the Holy Spirit. The apostle Paul is saying is, in your evangelism, outside of the walls of the church, that will happen if God wants someone else to understand it in their dialect. That's why he says it's for unbelievers. But then he says, inside of the church, if an unbeliever enters, and what Corinth was doing is they had turned the gift of tongues into basically a gibberish language. People do that to this day. Tune into TNN, or excuse me, uh, TBN. TNN doesn't exist anymore. That was the Nashville network for you old folks. I'm dating myself here. TBN. Now, what the Apostle Paul is saying is if an unbeliever walks into your church and everybody is speaking in a gibberish language, will not that unbeliever look at you all and say, you people are nuts? That's why when you tune into Benny Hinn, you're like, these people are nuts. It's a biblical thing. All right? And so what he says is, don't do that. Set an organized standard so that an unbeliever will look around and say, this makes sense to me. He continues, verse 24, but if all prophesy, which simply in this context means boldly proclaim the truth of God's word, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he's called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship and declare that God really is among you. What is the Apostle Paul saying? Organize your corporate gatherings as though outsiders are present. Organize your corporate gatherings so that while he's going to see, he or she is going to see a lot of distinctions as to who you are as a church, they understand what they're doing and the Holy Spirit is actually going to use the Word of God to bring that person to faith in Jesus Christ. This is the idea behind making our gathering public. That's why on Sunday mornings, I mean, we have our, you realize you drive by, we have our times on the sign. Anybody can show up here on a Sunday morning. We don't even have you pay for admission. How generous are we? All right? But the Apostle Paul says, that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to live and gather and worship in such a way as to assume that there are people in your presence that may not have faith in Jesus, but God's going to use the local church in such a way to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. We're not, through our distinctions, keeping the world out. Rather, it is to ensure that we have something good to actually show to the world around us. Now, this is what love's look, love looks like. God's vision for us is that we be a new people who live out the example of a united participation in what God is doing through the gospel of Jesus Christ. To love the world as a Christian requires you being a part of God's church. This is how God has defined him for himself to receive glory from us as his followers in this current age. It's not by us claiming him as God and then continuing on an individualistic journey. Rather, it's through the life of the church. Number two, understand that in that definition of a local church, 
Membership makes the gathered church visible. Membership makes the gathered church visible. Everything that we do as a church has a purpose of showing the world around us that we are the church. We are distinct. There are differences between Christians and non-Christians. Christians join together with other Christians to form the members of the church. Very early on, as we have continued to to evolve and grow as a church, we had the idea that we should call ourselves and have a tagline, Village Church, a church for Christians. It was an idea. But what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is there is a difference between someone who is a member of the church and someone who's not a follower of Jesus. Now, why would I say that? Because being a member of the church needs to be done in such a way so that outsiders know that they're outsiders, insiders know that they're insiders, but insiders know that they're insiders for the sake of outsiders, not for the sake of insiders. Right? Let me tease that out for you. Okay? Village Church is a church for Christians because it's only through acting like Christians, being discipled like Christians, and living as Christians that anybody else is ever going to become a Christian. It doesn't happen by muddying the faith, obfuscating the differences and distinctions of a church. We try to wear our distinctions on our sleeve. For a few decades, people have had the bad idea that you don't want to let people know all of the distinctions of what it means to be a Christian until you've got the hook in them. That's what cults do. All right? They like wave in front of you. We're super nice people. Don't you want to be a part? Then you get to the secret meeting and believe that they believe that they're going to be beamed up in a UFO in a couple of years. All right? And then it's too late. You're like, but they're so nice. <laughs> yeah, but they're nuts. All right? Village Church, we try to show you. No, I want you to understand week in and week out through the proclaimed word, through the distinctions of us living in community with one another in a biblical way, seeking to be and make disciples, I want you every week to get a picture of just how different the church of Jesus Christ is from the world so that if and when unbelievers in this church, and it happens all the time, become followers of Jesus Christ, they know exactly what it is that they are signing up for. In Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 4, the Apostle Paul writes this way. He says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and here's the kicker, and individually members one of another. That's the key. is that understanding that when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are joining His church There is no other environment in this world where you can unlearn the sinful selfishness of the world quite like the church of Jesus Christ. Being a part of the church of Jesus Christ requires repentance of self-centeredness. It requires you to join together in unity, like I said, with people really you may not have much more in common with other than the fact that you are united by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that unity is enough. Everywhere else in the world, it wants you to celebrate your individualism. It wants you to celebrate your uniqueness above all. It wants you to live a life where you ask the question over and over, what about me? 
In the church of Jesus Christ, we ask the opposite question. What about you? What about you? What about you? What about you? The church demands that you do forsake part of your individualism so that you can join in a community for the sake of others. That's why very quickly in discipleship you must learn the very important truth. It is not about you. Because as long as it's about you, it can't be about Jesus. And it's always, always about Jesus Christ. And so you repent of selfishness. You repent of self-centeredness so that as often as possible, you can join in with other people. You can help other people. You can be a part of other people's lives. You can share the gospel with other people. You can disciple other people. You can mature in your faith so that you can be a part of equipping other people in the environment of the church of Jesus Christ and all of the environments that we provide, you learn to care less about yourself and care more about the great commandment, love God, love others. And you know that you can't do either of those things without the gospel of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 puts it this way. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of of one spirit. And I love the way the Apostle Paul puts that because he gives two different people groups twice, Jews or Greeks. Now in that culture, you couldn't be much different if you were a Jew or a Greek. Jews stayed away from Greeks, Gentiles. Gentiles, Greeks stayed away from Jews. Totally different worldview. Jews wouldn't even eat a meal with a Gentile because they thought it made the meal unclean. And so what the Apostle Paul is doing is he's saying your ethnic identity, and this is something that's very controversial in our culture right now, your ethnic identity is not primary. The gospel of Jesus Christ is primary. When it comes to race, when it comes to ethnicity, The gospel is the great equalizer that brings us together. But then he says slave or free. He's talking about socioeconomic status. He's saying poor or rich, that's not what you identify as. You find your ultimate identity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He goes so far in the book of James to warn the church that when a poor person comes into your church gathering, you do not treat that person less than a rich person. You do not show preference to rich or poor. All are made equal through their faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no partiality. Then down in verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 12, he writes, now you are the body of Christ and what? individually members of it. You are not a Lone Ranger Christian. You cannot disciple yourself. So many people try. Just me and Jesus, that's all I need. Where does it say that in the scriptures? You cannot disciple yourself. You can listen to 17 podcasts today. You can't disciple yourself. You can read all the great books. You can't disciple yourself. You need a church. Why? in the New Testament, there are 59 different what are called one another's. Okay? I'm going to go through a few of them with you. Love one another. Instruct one another. 
serve one another, greet one another, have concern for one another, live in harmony with one another, be patient with one another, carry one another's burdens, etc. on and on. You live these out in the local church. Now you might retort and say, I live those out in my home, with my husband, with my wife, with my children. Not really. Why? I have a wife. I got three kids. Sure. I'm called to do those with my wife and three kids. But here's the difference between the church and my house. When I do it in my house, it benefits me. It can be all about me. It really can. And if that's the only place you do it, it will become self-centered. It will become selfish. It will be about establishing your home. It will be about making my kids good. It will be about my marriage. It will be about my happiness. Well, when you come into the church of Jesus Christ, I don't know if you know this, but not everybody in the church gets along. There's some conflict that arises from time to time. I don't know if you know this today. We'll have, you know, somewhere, there's, you know, give and take. There's, you know, six, seven hundred people that'll be through here today, all right? I don't like all of you. I'll be that honest. Some of you, you get on my nerves, all right? But here's the deal. Some of y'all, you will talk to me in the foyer. You will find out. You don't like me, all right? I, I'm the same guy up here that I am out there. I, I'll sit down and listen to you, but I got a warning. If you ask me my opinion, I'm going to give it to you. And I'm going to be honest, and you might not like my answer. And right there, we're going to come to a decision-making point with each other. Is this about Jesus, or is this about preference? Is this about personality? Is this about only wanting a church where I can be friends with absolutely everyone? It is impossible to be friends with everybody here. I don't care who you are. You can't be friends with 700 people, all right? Can't happen. So what is it that forces me to fulfill 59 different one another's in this church. The only explanation, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it's not about me. It's all about Jesus. And that can only happen in the church. Friend, you cannot go through life picking and choosing individuals here and there to do the church of Jesus Christ with. That's not the way that it works. You cannot come to that conclusion from the pages of Scripture. This is about the church of Jesus. God wants you to commit to loving a local church, a real, organized, local church, because this isn't about you and your living room with friends. This is about a church that practices biblical church membership. Jesus died so that he could redeem for himself a people to call his church. That is his plan, and there isn't another one. If you love Jesus, you will love his church. If you walk away from the church, say, I want nothing to do with them, I will tell you, stop calling yourself a follower of Jesus. Jesus is on a path with his church. He's not on a different one. You can't say, I love the body of Christ, but I've given up on the church. Don't get me wrong. I understand why some people have that chip on their shoulder. I understand the burdens that some people have because of either bad experiences, because you've been sinned against, because you've just had some unpleasant times in the church. But here's the deal. The church is the plan of Jesus, and he doesn't have another one. It's his plan. 
It's why this is worth it. Being a member of a church is ultimately about identifying yourself with the body of Christ in real, tangible ways. Hebrews 10 is an amazing theological treatise on how Jesus saves us. For 23 verses, he speaks to Christian assurance of faith in Jesus. He explains that Jesus has done everything through his atonement on the cross. He explains that the sacrifice of Jesus is sufficient, that Jesus saves you fully, totally, completely. But then it urges Christians to continue in their faith. The actual word is hold fast, which is a term that means you grab a hold and you never let go for any reason. And so he gives us this great pantheon of what it means to be a Christian. And then in verse 24, he gives an interesting thing. He gives you the tool for how you're going to do it. He says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. He says, hold fast to your faith in Jesus and then consider how to help others hold fast to their faith in Jesus. Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together. That's the corporate gathering. He says, you get together with other Christians. You encourage other Christians. But look at what he says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. That's encouraging as a pastor because that lets me know that the apostles had the same problems I do. All right? I can't greet today. I stubbed my toe last Wednesday. All right? I can't be there today. Have you seen my grass? I can't serve today. It's going to rain this afternoon. I got to wash my car. Can't be there today. I forgot that season four of Stranger Things came out and I got to binge it all today. All right? Every reason under the sun as to why we can't commit, as to why we can't come together, as to why we can't do this, why we can't do that. And he says, do not neglect it like other people do. Why? Because you need to encourage one another and you need to do that all the more as you see the day, which means the judgment of God drawing near. So what is the tool that God has provided for you to endure in your faith? Gathering with other believers in tangible ways with the local church. The author specifically points to that. But then number three, membership helps the world know who is in and who is out. You say, oh, no, 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 we don't want to do that. We don't want a clear distinction. I don't want anyone to feel like an outsider. I want everybody to feel like they belong. I need some people to belong before they're ever going to believe it's not the way the New Testament leads us. The New Testament leads us to understand that there needs to be clear lines of distinction, not to make you feel superior, but so that the world will know that they need something to become a part of the church. They need faith in Jesus Christ. So the important question there, why is formal church membership important? Why should you join a specific church? Why should you commit all of your time to one local church? Because I like the music at that church, but I like the preaching at this church. I like the way they set the thermostat at that church, but I enjoy the communion at this other church. They have some amazing events at this church, but I like you know the carpet at that church. They have mops at this church, but they have flops at this church, all right? I don't know, I think flops doesn't exist. 
They have Awana over here, but the Cub Scouts meet over there. So you want to create basically a buffet of churches for your life. Friends, you will not find anywhere in the New Testament that type of vision for your life. While not every church will have every single thing you want, you need to root down in one church so that you can know people, so that you can be known by people. So what is church membership? Well, I want to very quickly go through four points to explain, kind of summarizing what the New Testament puts forward as a whole as to what church membership is, and it is a very biblical concept. First, it is a covenant of union between a particular church and a Christian. It's a covenant of union between a particular church and a Christian. One church, one church body. You're joining that one. Secondly, it consists of the church's affirmation of the Christian's gospel profession. What do I mean by that? If you ever join Village Church, one of the pastors is going to sit down with you, and they're going to ask you some questions. Simple ones. It's not a theological treatise we're after. We want to know your testimony. How did you come to faith in Jesus Christ? But then secondly, we're going to ask you the million-dollar question. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? Because as pastors, we've been entrusted to shepherd the flock of God. And before we want to be sure that you can be part of our flock, we want to make sure you're part of the sheep. And if you don't understand the gospel, that doesn't mean we look at you and say, you fail, you get nothing. Get out. Good day, sir. It's not the Willy Wonka experience, all right? No, instead we say, hey, Let's work together. I don't know that you're a believer. I'm not going to say 100% you're an unbeliever, but before we're ready to affirm that you have faith in Jesus Christ, let's work together so that I can make sure you understand the gospel. And then when we think you understand the gospel, you meet that criteria. But then thirdly, it consists of the church's promise to give oversight to the Christian. And here's where some people say, I don't want that. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. That's your pride speaking. That's your ego speaking. Like I said, pastors through the New Testament have been entrusted to shepherd the flock of God. In other words, we're entrusted to ensure that you are participating in environments of discipleship and we have to keep you accountable in some way. I mean, it's drastic what we do. We ask for two Sundays a month for you to serve on Sunday morning at a serve team. That's 24 times a year. It's not that much. When you get to heaven, if you look to the Lord, say, Jesus, I don't know if you noticed, but 24 times every year, I spent 10 minutes on the sidewalk saying hello to people. That's Apostle Paul status, so don't act like you're not impressed. Yet we still get a lot of pushback on this issue. Here's the deal. Why do we do that? Does it say in the New Testament, 24 times a year you have to serve on a Sunday morning? No. We want to ensure that there is an environment in your life where at least two times a month you're serving somewhere for the sake of others. We want to foster that in your life. And that's the best idea that we've had. And you might say, oh, is it all about serving inside of the walls of the church? Absolutely not. But do you know who shows up when we serve outside of the walls? The people that typically serve a lot inside of the walls. That's who should. Why? Because they're being discipled towards that end. Fourthly, 
It consists of a Christian's promise to gather with the church and submit to its oversight. We do that in two environments. We do that on Sunday morning. If you're a member here at Village Church, we ask that you show up sometimes. I know, huge standard. But then we also, if you're going to be a member here, you need to join a community group. And that's a big deal for some of you because you're extremely introverted. You don't trust people easily because of this reason or that reason. But the reason that we want you in a community group is because we are a large church and we want to provide an environment where at a minimum way, we know that you know some people in the church, you're building some relationships with people in the church, and you are talking with people about the teachings from the scripture that you receive from the church. We want you to know people, we want you to be known by people, all right? That's what must happen in the church. That's it. It's not anything that's scary, there's no secret handshake. All right, we don't make you get any type of tattoos or anything. You can if you want to, but we don't require it. Now, this is a picture of the Christian's involvement in the life of the body of Christ. Now, very quickly, I want to share with you a few scriptures to explain biblically why we want you to sign a document of membership here as a church. Is it legally binding? I'll be honest, we have no idea. I have never asked a lawyer. I've been asked that question. I don't know. I didn't, we don't notarize it. Why do we do that? Here's why. You signed a document for the phone that's in your pocket or your purse. You did, all right? And I'm almost 100% sure I can say this confidently. You didn't read it, did you? No. You scrolled to the end. They could have asked for your kidney in there, and you have no idea that on such and such a day, a doctor's showing up at your house, you're going in a bathtub of ice, and they're taking your kidney. All right, I don't know if you guys heard about that in the 90s, but that was a big folktale. But here's the deal. You sign for a mortgage in our country, culturally, a way that we commit to things is by putting our signature on something. And so we want to do that so that we can point here and say, we agreed mutually to this. You don't have to do that to attend Village Church, but you do have to do it to be a member. Why? 1 Peter 5.5, 5, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you won't join the church, it's rooted in pride. It's always rooted in ego. You don't want to be subject to oversight. 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 15, the Apostle Paul writes to a young pastor named Timothy saying, Timothy, I'm not going to be able to be there for a while, so the leaders of the church must teach the people, and I love the phrase he uses, how to behave in God's household. Some of you might say, that makes us sound like children. It wasn't me, it was Paul. All right? He's saying, you got to teach people how to behave in God's house. All right? Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7 and 8, he says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their faith. Imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13, 17, just a few verses later. Obey your leaders. Submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as to those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. That's my favorite part. 
Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. So here's a couple of questions in light of all of those texts. How can you do that without church membership? What do I mean by that? Church membership is the answer to the question of which pastor is to teach you how to behave in the household of God. Which pastor should you pay attention to in order to become like Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and forever? Which pastor should you obey and submit to? That is why formal membership is necessary. As a pastor, I can tell you, I need to know who I am responsible for. Is it the professing Christians at the church across town? Who am I setting an example for? How can I be certain as to who walks through those doors actually has faith in Jesus Christ? These are the real questions that membership aids us to answer. That is why we have a process with membership classes so that we can explain who we are, why we do what we do, and what we believe as a church. That is why we have a minimum standard of commitment to ensure that you are entering environments for discipleship and spiritual growth. Here's the deal. You should not obey every pastor because many of them believe wacky and wrong things about the Bible and about Jesus. You certainly shouldn't follow every pastor's example because many aren't like Jesus. We have a membership covenant so that we know who is in and who is out. You do not, I want to be clear, you do not have to be a member, but you should. It is a step of faith in saying, I am a part of the church, and I want to obey his call on my life. Without identifying with a specific local church, I do not think the biblical standard would allow you to make that claim. Friends, Every church has a way of, of defining, rather, who are the stakeholders at that church. Some are just more honest about it. Some are just more organized about who that is, and some are more serious about what that means. And that is what we are aiming for. Being more serious about, about this is for the good of the church, both local and universal. A few application points for you this morning. First, following Jesus leads to a real commitment to a real church. Following Jesus leads to a real commitment to a real church. Secondly, non-Christians see the gospel at work through the gathered church. Non-Christians see the gospel at work through the gathered church. Thirdly, the local church offers tangible environments to obey God. Then fourthly, covenant membership provides the which, the who, and the how of building God's church. 